This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today we are in Genesis 3. Last week we studied the fall, uh, which is the first sin. It was the eating of the tree, and we learned how Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought death into paradise. And uh, Pete described the day as uh, the ultimate day of horrors, uh, that it was worse than anything we could imagine because their relationship with God was broken, fractured. Uh, Everything that we know has been affected by that event and that day. And he did a great job just explaining that. It's a sober section of Scripture Uh, that continues throughout the chapter. We're going to finish the chapter today, but it continues with a sobriety because what comes next is God delivering the consequences, the penalty, the curse uh, for their sin. But if we read this chapter and only come away sobered by sin and only come away realizing the devastating and the grievous consequences of the fall, then we don't get the whole picture of the chapter. Because what we're going to see in today's passage is that there is also a promise. Uh, There's also a hope. There's also, as we sang this morning, mercy reigning in the midst of judgment. And so today's section is sober as well, announcing judgment, but I want you to watch as we read through it, and then we'll look at it carefully, for signs of hope, even in the midst of judgment. So let's read. I'm going to read the whole chapter because you can't get the curse and the consequences of sin if you don't get the sin. So I'm going to read uh, the whole chapter, and then we'll jump in. Chapter 3 of Genesis, I'm reading from the ESV uh, version of the Bible. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound, this is where we're starting today. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. What a profound passage. God, we surely could spend days learning about what you're communicating to us here. We pray in the time that we have that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to focus on uh, what's most important here. I pray that uh, you would speak your truth to us. I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would speak to us with power. And I pray that you would show us both the devastating effects of sin that you would show us your holiness and our own sinfulness, that there'd be an awareness of where we stand before you. And I pray that you would also show us your sweet mercy, your kindness, the hope that is in this passage, uh, the mercy that you extend to those who rebel, which is not only Adam and Eve, but each of us in this room. Lord, we need mercy. Uh, Lord, we sang this morning how we need you, and we recognize that. So Lord, would you display your mercy greatly for us today? Encourage us draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we could spend a ton of time covering this passage. In some ways, I feel like I'm just going to give an overview with some application along the way. Um, but I want to look at sort of four movements in this passage. There's, there's one way to look at it is there's kind of four different things happening. And the first thing I want to look at is the idea of mercy pursuing. Mercy pursuing. Then I want to look at sin hiding sin hiding, and then judgment falling, and then hope rising. Kind of movements in what's happening in the story. Mercy pursuing, sin hiding, judgment falling, and hope rising. First, mercy pursuing. The way God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve reveals mercy. God's response is one of sweet mercy. And here's why. Because pure justice would be the minute they bit into the fruit, they fall over dead and are condemned eternally. That would be just, fair, and right. And actually, it would be expected. If you read the text, he says, in the day you eat, you shall surely die. That was the threat. And yet they bite the fruit, they eat, and their heart keeps beating. And they still keep breathing. Now, the process of death has begun in them. Spiritually, they do die, and the process of physical death does begin at that point. But there is a mercy. They go on to live. There is mercy extending to them, and we're going to see, as as we heard this morning, that mercy will triumph over judgment for those who believe. Secondly, we see God's mercy not only in allowing them to live, but in the manner In the manner of God, we learn not only from what God says, what he's like, we we learn from how God acts and behaves, what is he like. How does God act? Notice what it says in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God does not come running to judgment. God does not come thundering. There's not lightning flashing as he's about to render judgment and pour out wrath on his creation. He is walking in the cool of the day. And not only was he walking in the cool of the day, but he doesn't even start off with judgment. He starts off with a question. Look at verse 9. Adam and Eve are hidden. And in verse 9, it says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God's first words to the man after the sin, walking in the cool of the day, seeking, pursuing them, is a question. Where are you? Derek Kidner writes, God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace. 
Listen, he comes to, he's going to render judgment. He, he comes to call them to account for sure. But how does he come? He doesn't come to them as a thundering judge. He comes to them as a good shepherd who is pursuing sheep that have wandered, that have rebelled, that have resisted, that have sinned against a holy God. He comes as a good shepherd pursuing the sheep that he loves. Well, Adam is hiding, and when he asks, where are you? Uh, Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here's another opportunity. God could again rain thundering judgment. You better hide yourself because you have no idea what's about to happen. But he doesn't. He asks another question. He asks, have Have you eaten, verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God's not asking for information. This isn't God needs to find out what happened. This isn't due diligence. This isn't God who's a cop who doesn't really know what happened, but he's sitting across the table in that interrogation room that's in all the cop shows with the light shining on the guy, and he's going to ask questions and try to trap them and trick them and see if their story... No, God knows exactly what happens. Why is he asking questions? Why is he pursuing rather than immediately rendering judgment? Because he is asking questions to give them an opportunity to come out of hiding and to come into the light. He's giving them an opportunity to confess, to turn to him rather than running away from him. I love this quote from Ian Duggett that he wrote about the questioning, the approach of God to the sinful Adam and Eve. He wrote this, yet God comes neither as a hard master or a weak judge. He is master, but a gracious master. He is sternly opposed to evil, yet committed to redeeming the sinner. Now listen to this. So he comes like a tender parent, not with instant condemnation and terrible wrath, but with a question inviting a confession. Have you eaten from the tree? He comes like a tender parent, not with instant condemnation and terrible wrath, but with a question inviting a confession. Have you eaten from the tree? I read that and I felt very convicted. Not not just because I'm a sinner that understands the temptation to hide my sin, both from God and from others. This is a parenthetical application. It's not a rabbit trail, I don't think. It's a parenthetical application. But the way he expressed what God is doing here is something that models. Not only was I convicted because I I know what it's like to hide from God, but because I also know what it's like not to be a tender parent who inquires with a question. That there's something being modeled here as a side note. There's something being modeled here about how God approaches sheep that have wandered and are in grave danger. He comes offering a question to elicit a confession. And how many times, I don't know if you can relate to this, how many times have I related to my kids growing up, most of them are grown now, but how many times have I related to them immediately knowing what's going on, what's gone wrong, so I think. God absolutely does. I never absolutely know. But assume that I immediately know and show up without any opportunity to ask questions, but show up rendering verdict, assessment, and punishment like a judge showing up to deliver, this is what you did, and I know it, and this is what will happen. But God shows up not offering that kind of a condemning scolding, but rather inviting a confession through a question. He is a shepherd seeking to restore a wandering sheep. And as parents, we are called to be shepherds who are seeking to restore wandering sheep to the great shepherd. Children who are in great danger because in their hiding, 
and in their covering of their sin are in the same danger of what's going on here, hiding from God. Hiding from us is hiding from God, ultimately. God knows what has happened and could have approached them justly and righteously, very different, very differently. But he approaches them with mercy. This is mercy pursuing Adam and Eve. Mercy pursuing, sin hiding. The passage shows us how sin operates. Sin thrives in darkness. Sin flourishes when it's covered, when it's hidden. Sin dies when it's exposed to light, but sin flourishes in hiding. And so Adam and Eve are seeking to cover their sin. Verse 7, which was part of last week's passage, he said, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This was likely an act to hide from one another, uh, because their relationship is now fractured because of the sin, but it's also an act to hide from God as well. Sin brings shame. And so they try to cover their shame in a manufactured way. They try to manufacture their own covering for their sin, their own covering for their shame. And when they hear, verse 8, when they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hide themselves, it says, verse 8, from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. They don't want to be exposed to the holiness of God. And so with their fig leaves in place, their loincloths in place, uh, they are now hiding behind trees. They are now covered, duly covered before God who is walking in the garden. As if the God of the universe who created everything with, a, uh, with the word of his power, as if God is going to be tricked by the tree move. This isn't like you trying to find your keys. Where are they? God knows exactly where they are. God knows exactly what they're thinking. God knows exactly what they've done. And yet sin still tells us that we can hide, that we can cover ourselves. Sin is foolish. It leads us to believe stupid things. Sin leads us, it deceives us that they actually think maybe we'll miss him. He's coming by in the cool of the day. Maybe we'll be safe today for another day because we're hiding behind the tree. There's no tree big enough to hide from God. What they're doing here is kind of like a little kid. Have you ever seen a little kid, uh, a two-year-old kid, maybe that just under, trying to understand, teaching them the concept of hide and seek or something like that? And you say, okay, you go hide and then I'm going to count and come out and find you. And have you ever had this experience with a kid trying to hide and they do this? And w- what they're falsely <laughs> believing is that if I'm in the dark and I can't see you, then you can't see me either. If I can't see you, then I must really be hidden. That's what they're doing. It's like a childish perspective of trying to hide. And yet we can all relate to this. We all hide from others, uh, who we really are and what our sins really are. We're all tempted in that direction. We're never tempted. The flesh never tempts to appropriate exposure and confession. The flesh always tempts to covering over shame and embarrassment and sin with manufactured loincloths, if we can use that as a metaphor. And we even think we can hide from God. If no one else knows, God won't know either. We think we can hide behind a tree. And that's how we sin, for, that's how we sin freely often, because we just think no one knows, least of all, God. And so we privately criticize or judge someone, gossip about them, tear down their reputation behind their back, self-righteously assess and judge them. And somehow we think that the only person that knows about this is the person we're talking to who's enjoying it and who agrees with us and maybe is participating in the gossip. And yet we think that's the only person that knows. No one's hurt by what I did. We're hiding behind a tree in that moment because God knows God sees. Or young people, we, we, we lie to our parents about where we were, what we did, what we said, what we were doing, who we were with. 
And we think they'll never know. And if they never know, I'm okay, because if they never know, nobody important knows. It's hiding behind a tree. It's, it's covering rather than exposing before God others. We look at pornography and think it's a, a secret. It's private. No one knows. No one knows about that. We're hiding behind a tree, acting like God doesn't see. So we can live with the same temptation they have, that if, if no one sees me, I'm behind the tree, I'm safe. And the reality is that God always sees. There's two problems with what Adam and Eve are believing here. They're believing a lie. The first lie they're believing is that they can hide their actions somehow from God and that they can cover themselves from what they've done. That's a lie. You cannot cover yourself from what you've done and you cannot hide from God. But here's the the more subtle lie that's even more dangerous. And it's the lie that somehow it would be better to try to hide than to come to God. That somehow it would be better as a Christian for me to hide what I've done rather than acknowledge what I've done. That it would be better for me to move away from God rather than to move toward God. Because though God is holy, he is also a redeemer who has paid for our sins and desires us to be free from them. But the pathway to freedom, the pathway to freedom from God is never a loincloth and a tree. The pathway to freedom is confession, which is exactly what he's giving them an opportunity to do. The pathway to freedom, the pathway to fellowship, the pathway to peace, the pathway to joy, the pathway to life is never found in hiding. It's always found in the light. It's always found in truth. And so we believe the lie that if I don't acknowledge this and I hide this, I'm okay, while all, of, all along our souls rot in that condition. We corrode in that condition. We dry up in that condition. Life is found in the light. And so if we would humble ourselves and run to God rather than away from him, we would find life. And if we would, when appropriate, confess to others and invite others, we will find life and power and fellowship and not isolation and darkness and death. So they hide. They hide behind loincloths. They hide behind trees. They also hide by shifting blame. Did you notice that? They hide by saying, it's not my fault. I'm not taking responsibility for it. Uh, Verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. She gave me. He is blaming his wife when he is actually responsible. Do you notice that God talks to him first? God doesn't come addressing the serpent and God doesn't come addressing the woman. This was all in the lost sermon that I didn't preach. The reason is, is because Adam has a responsibility for the marriage that she does not have. She is called to be his helper, which implies that he is called to be a leader, which is fleshed out in the rest of scripture, that his calling is to be a servant leader, that his calling is to, to serve as a head, a representative Uh, before God of the marriage and of the family in a way that she doesn't. He is called to a sacrificial type of leadership, and she is called to a sacrificial type of respect and submission to that leadership. So they, they are equal in worth and value, equal in dignity before God, equal image bearers, equally called to take dominion of their spheres, equally called to, 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 uh, you know, to multiply, to bear fruit, um, to work and keep. They both have this calling, but they function differently in the companionship, the covenant of companionship. And we see this here because God comes addressing Adam. He doesn't come addressing Eve initially. He comes addressing Adam. Who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? And he blames Eve. Eve, incidentally, blames the serpent. No one takes responsibility. 
they are hiding not only under fig leaves, but they're hiding under excuses of what someone else caused me to do. It it really couldn't be farther from a humble confession. You gave her to me, and now she has ruined everything. Adam's really not ultimately blaming her, is he? Look at the language. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me. What's he really doing? He's really peeking his little head out behind the tree and pointing his little finger at God and saying, this is all because of what you did. When I was alone in the garden prior to her, did did we have this problem? Look what you have done. He points to God forgetting that his loving creator placed him in a perfect world with a perfect companion and gave him a responsibility. Before Eve was created, he said to him, you must work and keep the garden. Keep meant to protect, to guard. It was Adam's responsibility. And then implicitly, he was to teach that law to Eve. Eve wasn't even in the scene yet. God gave Adam that command before Eve is created. He was implicitly to lead her in that, to teach her God's law, to ensure that their family obeyed God. So he should have been on the lookout for talking snakes that are saying to disobey God. He should have been beheading talking snakes, and yet he is with her. He is with her as the serpent deceives her. And so he bears a responsibility. How quickly he has forgotten what God has called him to do. How quickly he's forgotten what God has provided. It's the woman you gave me. One chapter earlier, he's saying, oh, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And they were naked and not ashamed, verse 25, because they had nothing to be ashamed of. But now shame is entered because they have sinned. And it's no longer, wow, bone of my bones and flesh of my, the honeymoon is over. And now it's the woman you gave me. God, this is your fault. The circumstances you created. And you and I do the exact same thing. The reason that I grumble and the reason that I complain about my job is because the way my boss treats me. Hey, the boss may be unfair, the boss may be unkind, the boss may be unappreciative, and he'll answer to God for all of that. The boss may be, uh, biblically speaking, a jerk. I don't know what the Bible translates that. He may be mean and harsh and a tyrant. That's probably a biblical word. He may be a tyrant. That may be what the boss is. But when we say that, we're saying, Lord, it's the boss you gave me. That's why I'm this way. It's the boss you gave me. And it's God's fault that I have the attitude I do about my job. Or it's, you know, I only, I I don't yell at the kids except when they don't do what I tell them to do. How many times do I have to tell you, we say, right, mom, dad, how many times do I have to tell you? If you would do what I said the first time, I wouldn't yell at you. And because I'm yelling at you, I'm demonstrating far less godliness than you, but that's beside the point. It's your fault because of what you did. Lord, it's the kids you gave me. If you had given me obedient kids, this, we wouldn't have the anger problem that we have. But because the kids, that's why I. See, we do. We, we find a place. If my husband would lead better, I'd be happy to do what the Bible says. I'd be happy to submit to a loving, sacrificial leader. I'd be happy to encourage. I'd be happy to respect if he was respectable. I'd be happy to love. I'd be happy to be gracious if he was doing his job, but he's not, so I feel like I have to do both jobs, the husband and the wife, the mother and the father, and so that's why I act the way I do. That's why I'm bitter. That's why I'm short. It's the husband you gave me. I'd be happy to talk to my wife. I'd be happy to uh, 
have conversation with her and draw her out and care for her. But every time we talk, it ends up being what I'm doing wrong. Every conversation leads to something wrong with me. It's all my fault. So if she'd show some appreciation, if she'd show some respect, if she'd show some understanding of what I'm going through, I'd be happy to talk to her. But if not, I'd just prefer to watch the game, to be frank. It's the wife you gave me. And no matter what it is, we can see ourselves in this story. It it is... The, the pattern of temptation and behavior continues to this day in all of us because we are all infected by sin in the fall. And there are no new temptations and there are no new sins under the sun. We all do this. Seeing ourselves in the story is powerful because it tells us that God knows and we can't hide But the story of the Bible also teaches us this, that Christ forgives us and there's no need to hide. The Bible teaches not only, in in the fall, the Bible teaches that God knows our sin and we can't hide in this action, this consequence is what's going on here. But in Christ, it's also true that we have nothing to hide. That means that I can freely acknowledge my responsibility rather than blame someone else and still be forgiven and loved and welcomed by a holy God. As a matter of fact, I can receive his power and his help to change when I humble myself because God gives grace to the humble. When I resist, then God resists. But when I humble myself, I receive grace. This means we can be real with God. And it means ideally we can be real with one another because there's no one in the room that doesn't identify with everything we're reading. There's no one in the room that is not, uh, is not sinful. And there's no one in the room in Christ who's not forgiven and has nothing to hide. Ideally, and I say ideally, ideally the church should be the safest place on the planet to be real about our sin. Safer than our own families, if you have family members who are not believers, the church is safer than, than family. Should be the safest place. By, that, by safe, I mean, it's not safe to sin and to continue in sin. It's never acceptable to continue in sin. But it's safe to acknowledge our weakness, our sin, our rebellion, our hidden sins. It's safe to acknowledge that and to receive understanding and help and support to change. And that's why we want to be a church, by God's grace, where it's safe to talk about sin, where it's safe to talk about sins far more serious than the examples I've given. Some of you in the room are saying, okay, those examples are all kind of cute. Those are t-ball sins compared to what I'm dealing with. I'm glad somebody's a little short with their kids because I'm tempted to take my life. See, the church should be a place where it would be a safe environment to find a Christian friend to trust and talk about suicidal temptation. Same-sex attraction. I'm battling same-sex attraction. The church should be a place where that can be shared and a person can find help. I'm racked with guilt because I had an abortion. The church should be a place where someone can say that to another Christian and find help, knowing that we cannot hide from God, but we have nothing to hide in Christ. Church would be a place where someone could say, I'm addicted to gambling. I'm blowing my money at a casino. I look okay on the outside. What you don't know is that I'm dependent on prescription meds. I am addicted to painkillers. The church should be a place where we can say that. I'm sleeping with my boyfriend and I want to stop. Can you help me stop? Sunday morning, I strolled in late because Saturday night, I was at a strip club. Can you help me? I don't ever want to go back. I am considering divorcing my spouse and I have not even told him I need help. Could you help me? I don't want to hide. We're at a place where we're going to have to file bankruptcy 
we are going to lose it all. I'm angry not just because the kids didn't pick up their toys, but because I was raped. That's why I'm angry. Could you help me? There's no hiding before God. And in Christ, there's no need to hide because we are forgiven our sins and we are protected and guarded and helped in our heart from the sins done against us as well. And the Lord wants to, the Lord wants to meet us through his people, through reality, through truth, not through living under a loincloth behind a tree but being real before God. And once we're real before God, and as we're real before God, and as we're secure in redemption, then the church becomes a place of people who have nothing to hide. Not people who uh, condone sin. Not people who say, ah, it doesn't matter. No, not that at all. People who say, yes, it matters, but it also matters more that there's forgiveness and power to change in Jesus there is judgment, there is sin hiding in this passage. There is judgment falling. God brings judgment to everyone involved. He begins with the serpent. I'm going to go a little bit quickly through this. Um, he, he's, he says that you're cursed above all livestock. On your belly you shall go, uh, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Um, does that mean that the serpent had four legs and after the sin, the legs are cut off? No, probably not. This is probably not a biological curse. Uh, I think God is speaking to the dark power, Satan, that animated the serpent and brings the temptation. Uh, serpents don't eat dust anyway. That's metaphorically. A, a snake doesn't survive off eating dirt. So that, that you shall on your belly go and eat dust. It means you will be lowly. You will be judged. You will be underfoot, so to speak. And that's exactly where he goes, that ultimately he says, uh, there will be an offspring that will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's also this judgment of a crushed head, which I'll come back to in a minute. Next, he moves to Eve. To Eve, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Obviously, this is a bit of thorny material that we're going to cover uh, briefly. If you have any questions, let me know. I'll do my best to answer them. But what is the curse for Eve for her part in, in the sin? Well, uh, in short, it is multiplied pain in childbearing. Bringing forth children will be painful. Now, we certainly believe that in a literal sense, uh, that evidently prior to the fall, childbirth was not painful, evidently. Uh, so we certainly believe that in a literal sense, uh, but, but it's probably more than that. I mean, childbirth is painful for a moment and then is gone. Uh, that's why you ladies have more kids. If you remembered, you'd have stopped the first time, but you keep going because God is gracious and you're loving and you'll endure anything. So that's, that's great. Men, if men had to go through that, uh, everybody would have one kid, I assure you. But so you ladies press on, but it probably means more than that. It probably means more than delivery is painful. It probably means that a woman uh, will orient her heart around children and this will be a painful experience for you. Think about Eve. What's going to happen in chapter 4 next week? Her two sins, sons, well, yep, that's, that was an appropriate slip. Her two sons, one will murder the other. And the murderer will be consigned to being a wanderer. You want to talk about being pained? To be, you want to talk about pain that far exceeded their delivery? Simeon says to Jesus, says to Mary, when, when Jesus is born, the, the uh, prediction that, the, that uh, the Messiah would come, he says that a sword will pierce your soul, Mary. That mothers will feel the struggles, the pain, the difficulty that their kids go through. Here's another one. Um, in chapter one, the calling is to be fruitful and multiply, and yet not everyone can be fruitful. There is the pain of, of infertility. There's all kinds of pain associated with motherhood. So it's probably not just the one hour, the five hours, the 20 hours of, of labor. It is probably 
that a mother will know great joy, but in a fallen world, a mother will know no greater anguish than the suffering of her children. A mother will know no greater anguish than, a, than to watch a child walk away from the Lord. Uh, that, that will be the, the sword that will pierce her heart greater than anything else. To watch a child suffer and to be able to do nothing about it, that will be the great pain, deep pain in a fallen world. Secondly, her relationship with her husband is, is distorted. You shall, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This word desires only used two other times in the Bible. One other time it's in the next chapter uh, and it has to do with sin. Desire for the sin has a desire for you. You must master it is, what it, the, is how it's translated there. Um, in the ESV, the footnote says your desire shall be against your husband. So it probably means that there will be a rivalry that there will be a rival. In a perfect world, he is a loving, sacrificial, caring leader that you take great delight and joy in responding to. In a fallen world, he will tend towards, um, he will tend towards domineering you or being passive. And in either case, you, your desire will be against him. You will be tempted to want to lead. You will be tempted to fill the gap that he leaves, or you will be tempted to resist his leadership when it is uh, imperfect or even sinful. Your desire will be, again, you will challenge his leadership. You won't compliment his leadership. You will be tempted to challenge him, whether he is domineering or passive, either way. And most guys are on one side or the other to pick the issue. There's usually not a guy who's just one way all the way. It's usually a mixed bag. So you'll be challenged to leadership. Do you see what's going on here? Women are different than men. This was from the lost sermon as well. Women are different than men and their curses are different. The curse against women is about her relationships. She orients her life around her husband and she orients her life around her children and that's where she will find pain. The same thing happens with men. The curse against Adam is about what? It's about his work. She finds her identity in her relationships, in her home. He finds his identity in his work. These are not absolute statements. It does not mean that she does not work and does not enjoy her work. And it does not mean that he does not love his wife and love his kids and is not affected by what's happened to them. It's not exclusive. It's general, very general orientation. She is oriented relationally. He is oriented by his work. His identity is in his accomplishment through his work. So what will happen with his work? Because you've listened to your wife, because you've sinned, you, uh, um, the ground will be cursed. It will produce thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. Before you worked, he worked before the fall. Work is not the result of the fall. Difficulty in work is the result of the fall. So work will now be hard. It was a pure delight in the garden. It was nonstop communion with God. It was fruitfulness everywhere. It was all you can eat, luscious food, wonderful garden paradise. That was great. Now that you've sinned, you're going to work hard by the sweat of your brow just to eat. And every, every one of us can relate to that. Um, you may not sweat in your job. You may sit in a cubicle uh, and so you may not physically, but you have thorns and thistles too. Yeah, tell me about it. It's a guy in the next cubicle. You're thinking, maybe, I don't know. But God put him there for your sanctification. So you have thorns and thistles. The computer doesn't work. The parts don't show up. The person didn't make it to the appointment. You lost your job. You're underpaid. What, what, there's thorns and thistles everywhere in our work. And so the Lord looks at, at, at points of identity, and I'm not going to, bro- this isn't complete. This is a general orientation. I'm going to be very clear about that because marriage, the fall affects men in marriage as well. And the fall affects men as fathers and the fall affects women who work both in and outside their home. So there, it's, it's not the totality of the fall, but it is the general effects in the way God created the man and the woman. The man to lead in working and keeping Intending the garden, her alongside helping as a companion, a covenant companion. Together they are taking dominion. Together they are multiplying. He's leading in that endeavor. And so his orientation is towards the garden. Her orientation is toward the relationships. And both will now be a lot of work. Ask anybody who's got a job, anybody who's married, and anybody who's parented more than a week. And they will tell you, yes, it's a fallen world. We need Jesus. 
And that's the good news. Well, the last thing is, how can you say this in 30 seconds? They will die. That's the last thing. If you're from the dust to the dust, you shall return. Okay? Uh, I have to say something about hope. I cannot end with, you're going to die and get buried. I've got to say, so please give me a minute. I've got to say something else from the text. In this, there is hope rising. The passage does not end with verse 19, to the dust you shall return. There is hope in the judgment. Number one, they aren't instantly killed. Look at this breath of hope. This is phenomenal. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. It should be done right there. What do you mean the mother of all the living? It should be over. But God has granted her life. He's going to grant her offspring and generations. It's going to be painful, but life will continue. Adam acts by faith. He doesn't name his wife, you know, end of the road or something like that, or it's all over. He names her Eve. The, the, the word Eve in Hebrew, it sounds like life giver or it sounds like living. And that's why she's called the mother of all the living. Secondly, God makes clothing for Adam and Eve. They try to cover their shame. You cannot cover your shame. God takes the fig leaves away. God kills animals. God clothes them in the skins of animals. This is the first time that God takes a dead animal to cover the shame of man's sin. And it is the prototype of what will happen throughout the uh, sacrificial system, that atonement will be made by the slaying of animals, the shed blood of animals for the sin of men and women, and it starts in the garden. He's already covering their shame. The the, the loincloths are about shame. We, we, were ashamed. we were afraid. We hid ourselves. It's about hiding our sins from God. And he's saying, I'm going to cover you. Ultimately, he will cover us in the righteousness of Christ. And that's where we end, verse 15. That ultimately, there will come offspring from the woman. We don't have time to get into her, the enmity part. But he, this offspring, there will be plural offspring, there will also be singular offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. That in the very midst of judgment, there is this promise that the, the serpent will be defeated because one will come that will crush his head. And it's a picture of the one who will come, Jesus. The New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. He comes to reverse the curse. He comes to, to obey where Adam fell. Adam listens to temptation and sins. Jesus meets Satan in the wilderness and says, thus says the Lord three times and does not sin. Jesus obeys the tempt, uh, to God in the temptation. Jesus obeys the law. Jesus dies for our sin. He comes, to, he comes to destroy death. He comes to reverse all that happens in the curse. He comes to bring forgiveness of sins. He comes to bring eternal life. And in him, while the curse is not removed until his return, he is already reversing the effects of the curse. So in Christ, there is pain in childbearing. There is pain in motherhood and fatherhood. There is difficulty in relationship between husband and wife, but there is grace for change. There's actually the picture that a husband can love his wife like Christ loved the church, and she can respond to him as the church responds to the Lord. That by grace, by the power of the Spirit, by the Scripture, God is taking marriages and renewing and restoring and giving new life so that they're actually a picture of the gospel because of Jesus' coming and dying. He also gives our work meaning. He doesn't remove the thorns and thistles. Because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that your computer will never break down. That only happens to unbelievers. You will have thorns and thistles, okay? But there is faith and there is grace. And God will even take the difficulties of your job to make you more like him. He'll even take the sweat of your brow and as you respond to him, conform you more into the image of Christ. So he redeems the curses that we see and will one day remove them. Even death, for to dust you shall return. If you're a Christian, 
and you live out your life before Jesus' return, you will die physically. You physically will die. But even there, when a Christian dies, Paul writes, we do not grieve as the world grieves. We're sorrowful. Our hearts ache. It's a blow to us. We're emotionally grieving when a loved one we, uh, dies. But there is also this rejoicing that they are with the Lord. They are present with the Lord. That we will see them again. That even death, while it is an intruder, while it is unnatural in the garden, even death, which will ultimately be eradicated, even death for the Christian can be, a, can be something that is, is by faith is, is a joy. And even a crying, weary heart can praise the Lord in the midst of the death of a believer, knowing that they have fulfilled their race. Last thing he does is he bolts, the, he bars their access to the tree of life. That's merciful as well. He says, because if they eat from the tree of life, they'll live forever, and we don't want them to live forever. God says, I don't want them to live forever in this situation. It's merciful. If he let them eat the tree of life, then it would be pain in childbearing. It would be pain for eternity. All these difficulties, you're just confirmed in that forever. So he, he kicks them out of the garden, but the tree of life is ultimately restored at the end of the story. God creates, man falls, the serpent crusher comes, Jesus redeems, and then one day God restores everything. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, the tree of life appears again. Listen to what's going to actually ultimately happen, and we're done here. The, uh, Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city in the New Jerusalem. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. See, it's going to totally be turned around. There will no longer be anything accursed But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The one Jesus will crush the serpent's head. He will reverse the curse and he will restore his people. He will bring us in contact again to the tree of the life, which is for the healing of the nations. But more importantly, he'll bring us face to face with God. We will worship him in his light and we will reign forever and ever. That's how the story ends. It's painful now. Relationships are broken and difficult. We all want to hide our sin. We all do hide our sin. We all don't want to be known for who we are. We all want to blame someone else. But Jesus comes to change all that. And through him today, we can own our sin and ask forgiveness and repent. Through him today, we can have marriages that are empowered in their brokenness and sin to be changed for his glory. We can parent by faith with our kids, knowing that even though it's painful, God is a faithful God. We no longer have to hide. We can expose ourselves before the merciful shepherd that pursues us and loves us and one day will return for us and Revelation 22 will be in effect. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.